First Timothy chapter 3, we find what Paul has, to, has for us from the Holy Spirit to tell us about leaders. He talks to us about elders. He talks to us about deacons. And in verses 14 to 15, he tells us why he says those things. He tells us there in verses 14 to 15, as we just saw a moment ago, he says, These things are right to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. This was the purpose of what he was telling us in chapter 3. He wants us to know and understand how we ought to conduct ourselves. This also includes the idea how we are to be organized, because he's talking about leaders here, elders and deacons, within the church of the Lord. No doubt today we can find all different types of standards around us. Man has all kinds of ideas about what they say is a standard for what they're looking for. If you ever look at a job uh, application or a job posting, you know, depending on what you're looking at, uh, what kind of job you're looking for, they all have different requirements. But we find that God has certain requirements as well, and mankind over the years has overwhelmingly, completely and totally ignored them all. Because we have all, or many of us, probably have had experiences where we have visited a congregation, either for a time that we're on vacation, or we're trying to find a place where we are comfortable worshiping with, and we find things are not, as Paul talks about there in verses 15, as they ought to be in the Lord's church. We find there in verse 15, he says the phrase, how you, that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now, last week we talked about elders. We're going to mention just a little bit of it here and here as we go through this process, looking at now deacons or servants is what's really, what's really being talked about here. So this morning I want to show we can learn from the qualities of leaders that God has had, the, the qualities that God desires for leaders in the church today. Remember, these are not man's qualities. These are not man's standards. These are standards put forth by God. We mentioned last week how, if you remember, remember there was approximately 25 different things that are mentioned between 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 concerning the qualifications and the characteristics of an elder. And we find in, in 1 Timothy 3 there are many similar things but we know the, the position or the office of a deacon is not the same as that of an elder. We want to begin first by looking at having a few words about elders and deacons. As we think about elders and deacons, first about the position of a deacon. The terms used for elders are never applied to deacons. Deacons who try to behave as an elder have way stepped out of their position as we find within the Bible. Deacons are not elders, though elders many times do serve or do act in ways as a deacon in the sense that they do serve not only spiritually but also physically as well. The word deacon means a servant. We're not talking about an errand boy. That's not what it's talking about. It's a servant of the church. They're not your personal errand boy. They are a servant of the church. The functions of deacons are different from elders, but there are some similarities. 
When I was in South Carolina, I attended a preacher's meeting, and they were talking about elders and deacons. Now, I knew nothing about this group of people. Well, I had been there maybe, maybe once before, and so I was just sitting there being quiet, listening to them talk about elders and deacons, and they listened to a man say, well, if a deacon performs a task handed to him by the elders, then he has done what he's supposed to. And I asked a simple question, what if the deacon can't tell someone how to be saved? Well, if they do the task completed for them, no. See, every Christian should be able to tell someone from the Bible how to become a child of God. That implies not only to elders, but also to deacons. So we have a real bad problem when it comes to elders and deacons to talk about how the elders are over the spiritual, the deacons are over the material. All men, special leaders, are to be spiritual leaders. They should be able to conduct and to be able to talk to people about Bible-related matters. And I get real frustrated when people try to tell me a deacon doesn't have to have that much Bible knowledge because that's something we find in the Scriptures. As we're going through this, we're going to actually find that those who have proved themselves are able to serve as a deacon. Meaning they have some Bible knowledge. The elders are over all aspects of the work of the church, but we also know that wise elders will delegate work. But all are to be involved, right? It all makes common sense, right? Everywhere else in the Bible we find that Christians are called to be workers, but when we get to elders and deacons, we try to say, well, one is spiritual, one is physical only. They all do similar, similar things, right? Is an elder out of place because he goes outside and tries to help mowing the lawn? We say, no, 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 you're over the spiritual. No. We don't get it to a deacon because they have a Bible study with someone? No. And so we have to be very careful with the idea of the elders are over the spiritual and not have, no, have nothing to do with the physical, or the deacons are only over the physical and nothing to do with the spiritual. We all are to be spiritually minded people. We think about, as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8, we find the phrase here in verse 8, he says, likewise. Likewise means in this manner, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8. He says here, likewise deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. Now, he uses the term, the New King James says reverent, the King James says grave here in verse 8. It is they are to be serious, honorable, and dignified. They have to be able to be serious. You ever know someone and you say, can you ever be serious for just five minutes? Now, I goof off plenty. I joke around plenty. Many of us do. But I think when we come down, we start talking about Bible things that we're not joking around anymore. And when we see someone who is in need, or we see something that needs to be taken care of, that we are very serious about it. Serious also means the idea of thinking about reverent, being serious and honorable. It also means, what, means that we will do what needs to be done, even when it's not pleasant. Not double-tongued means we don't say one thing to one person and say something else to another. That when we say one thing to one person, we'll say the exact same thing to the next person. You won't find that in many politicians, maybe any. But in a Christian, remember we talked about last week how many of these things we should strive for, even if we're not capable of being a deacon or elder. Many of these things we can apply 
to our own personal lives because it will make us better Christians and better people overall, right? Not double-tongued. says one thing to one person and something else to another. Not given to much wine. This is a poor translation of that. This is not a license for little. In the Greek, as we talked about last week, the idea is, is not a man that is enslaved to wine. Moderation, think about this. Has moderation ever once, even once, changed wrong to right? Now some will talk about Paul and Timothy, right? Remember Paul told Timothy, take a little while for your stomach's sake? Do you remember what Paul was doing for Timothy? The Bible tells us in that context that Timothy's only drinking water, and I can, I can guarantee it wasn't smart water, right? They didn't have a lot of purified water back in those times. And so he had a lot of problems and to the point where Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. That tells you the reason, right? It was medicinal. It wasn't social. And well, yeah, we have those today who will say, well, if I drink just a little bit, so long as I don't become drunk, well, how do you know what point you become drunk in the first place? Because you have been there before, right? And as you drink a little bit more, pushing that limit... The limit gets farther and farther. See, moderation never changes wrong to right. There is a difference between medicinal and social. We find here this idea is not a license to drink alcohol. Christians, as we saw last week, we talked about with elders, the idea is they were not to be beside it, right? The same idea here with, with deacons. Next, he talks about not greedy for money, nor greedy of filthy lucre, the King James says. I like that term, filthy lucre, which means, I think it's dirty money, right? One of the dirtiest things on the planet is money. Coins, bills, it is disgusting, right? Physically, and also think about what it's used for many times, it's dirty, literally and figuratively, right? But he says here in verse 4, he says he's not greedy for money. Not greedy of base gain. They're not obsessed with it. It's not all they talk about. Money is not condemned as we well know, but the love of money is, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, right? It's not the issue of having money, it's how we treat it, our attitude about it. Look with me now at verse 9. Here he says, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Now this is why I talked about earlier the idea how... Again, deacons must be spiritually minded people. It's not just being a servant in the sense of doing physical things. You have to have some Bible knowledge. If you have Bible knowledge, then you can hold the mystery of the faith, right? You can hold the gospel. That is what he's talking about there. You can hold the truth of God's Word with a pure conscience. They have to be spiritually minded people. Spiritually minded people. The idea of holding the mystery of the faith, the pure conscience, it means they hold, it means to hold to, to adhere to, to cling to. It's not someone who must say is wishy-washy. It's someone who we say, well, they ride the fence, or we say, well, they say this over here, but they're not a different group of people, they say something else. That goes back to being double-tongued, right? A lot of preachers, so-called, are that way as well, right? We say sometimes, well, hunt with anyone's dog. Deacons can be the same way, right? They'll just go with whoever's near them. That's not holding to the mystery of the faith of the pure conscience. That's what we call a fraud, isn't it? That's what Christ calls a hypocrite. Deacons cannot be weak concerning the faith, and as we well know, neither can elders either. As we saw last week, looking at verse 10, he says here, but let those, but let 
let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons. We're not talking about the idea that they have to fill out some physical, some physical test, mark, you know, what's correct. Though sometimes, friends, to learn the truth about people, that's what you have to do, isn't it? But the idea here we find here in verse 10 is they have to prove themselves as being loyal to God and being faithful before they can even be considered to be a deacon, and we can also say, or an elder. Prove means to put to the test the purpose of approving. Those who serve as deacons must be those who have proved themselves to be faithful to God and loyal to His Word before they can be considered as a deacon. Think about this for a second. Can we apply that in other places without going against Scripture? Can we apply that to Bible class teachers? Can we apply that to preachers? Can we apply that to elders? Yes. And we should, right? Because we want to understand and have full, have without any confusion that when false teaching occurs, does anything good ever come from it? At the very least, confusion, right? At the very least, confusion. Look at verse 11 now with me. Then he talks about, it's interesting here, how he begins to talk about the wives of deacons. And because of the context, we also are going to find here in, in verse 11 that this also can be, a, can be applied to, uh, to those who are elders as well. I don't know why that slide was in that place. Since the context deals with elders and deacons, these qualities are applied to the wives of both elders and deacons, right? You know what what Paul is talking about? Your mate can make you be disqualified. You admit an elder or deacon and you meet their wife and you think, wow, did you hear what that person said? It makes us wonder why that person is serving as an elder or deacon, shouldn't it? Look with me now at verse 11. He says, they, he says in verse 11, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanders, not uh, temperate, faithful in all things. Reverent is serious, honorable, dignified, as we talked about before. Not slanders, those who accuse and attempt to defame others. This is a talking in context about the wives of deacons. We know this is a common problem among everyone today. Not slanders. And then he says temperate, or as the King James says, sober, can also mean cautious. They don't just jump into things they think about. They consider those things carefully there in verse 11. Temperate, and then he says here, faithful in all things. It is to be true to God in all things. Why would you have an elder or a deacon whose wife was not faithful? Why would you have that person serve as an elder or as a deacon? The Bible just tells us you can't. Therefore, can a spouse make a person disqualified to be an elder or a deacon? God, speaking through Paul, says yes. They can be disqualified because of their spouse. That's how important it is when we think about the elders in the church and the leader, the deacons in the church, the leaders in general, how important it is we consider closely the qualities that God puts forth here through the Spirit, through Paul. Looking at verse 12 of 1 Timothy 3, he says, Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their own, ruling, uh, their children and their own houses well. 
So we saw this last week as well. Husbands of one wife, as we saw discussed with, with elders. But also notice, we discussed this a little bit last week as well. Ruling their children and their own house as well. Isn't it interesting that he says children and houses? That means that our homes are under control, not just our children. If you rule your own, if he makes a, a specific designation between children and houses, who is included in the houses? Our spouse. We don't like the idea of our husband ruling over us, but isn't that what Paul is talking about? And we know, as we talked about before, I'm not going to go into long detail about it, how the husband is to rule his house and be the head over it. But if he's not the head over it, he's not qualified to be an elder or a deacon. Ruling it means you're the one who makes, you're the head of the house, right? There's only one way to say it, the head of the house. That's biblical. If you're not the head of the house, we have a lot of problems there in verse 12. Husbands of one wife ruin their children and their houses well there in verse 12. Verse 13 he says here, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. For those who have served well, sometimes you find the King James, King James I think, uses the idea of the office of an elder, or the office rather of a deacon. Here it means a position or a standing. Here in verse 13, uh, For those who have served well as deacons, uh, attain for themselves a good standing, as the as King James says, a, a, a good degree, it means they have attained trust and influence. In the faith which is in Christ Jesus, uh, our faith is to be in Christ and nowhere else. And so again, some, some of these words here, if you notice they're in the first two letters, A and B, that's a reference to what we find in the King James, where you find that word office is used, referencing a deacon. But it also can be applied to the office of an elder as well. Next, we want to notice, again, the purpose of Paul's writing. As we go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, looking at verses 14, uh, 14 and 15, and we'll also include at the end here verse 16, so we get the whole chapter. To know how to conduct themselves in the church of God. That was the purpose of Paul's writing, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14 and 15. Why would you write about that if first it wasn't a command of God and two, it wasn't already a problem? You know, you think about the book of Revelation, doesn't uh, John there, you know, he was speaking by, you know, Christ was speaking and John was speaking there as well there in Revelation. He talks about those who have been led away by the false prophets, right? Prophetess, I believe the name is used there is Jezebel, right? And so what's happening, they're, they were using or allowed themselves to be influenced by a leader who, first of all, had no reason to be a leader, right? It could have been that she wasn't a leader. It could have been she just had a very big mouth and just had a lot of false teaching. That's not impossible, right? False teachers sometimes have a lot of big mouths, and sometimes gospel preachers, their mouth isn't big enough to proclaim the truth and defend it, right? Look at verses 14 to 15. He says, these things are right to you, what he has just talked about, right? Though I hope to come to you shortly. Which means he's telling them now that he hopes to be there. Which tells you how important it is to Paul, right? I'm telling you this now, but I also hope to be there very soon. Was that an important thing for Paul? Yeah. It's like sending someone a text and saying, this is how important it is. I'm on my way. I want you to know this you know, in case I don't get there in time, right? That's what Paul's talking about. If I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. In case there's any confusion of what Paul's talking about, he makes it very clear, right? In the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Why would you say all that? Because he wants them to know how they ought to conduct themselves, especially concerning leaders in the church. It was very important to Paul, and it should be very important to us as well. Looking at verse 16, the final verse in this chapter. He says here, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. That's an interesting phrase. What Paul is talking about here is that man's hope is dependent upon God revealing his will to man. Right? Without great controversy is a mystery of godliness. God has made it where it's not harder for us to understand what He wants from us, right? We look at 2 Peter chapter uh, 1 here in just a moment. We find that God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, right? 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. He tells us here, uh, As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, to the knowledge of Him He called us by glory and virtue. Without, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God has revealed to us what He wants us to do. He has revealed to us through the written word how we are to live. Yes, how we are to serve the Lord's church. It is not a great mystery any longer, is it? Without controversy, without difficulty, great is the mystery of godliness. That's a reference to righteousness. It's a reference to, the, to Christ. We can apply it to the gospel, to the church, and to salvation. God has revealed to us all things, but it's dependent upon man to listen to what God has revealed to us through the written word today. God has revealed it long ago, but man today still is struggling to apply it still today to our own lives and even in the church as well. The latter part of verse 16, he says, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up to glory. Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about Christ. Christ was God in the flesh. Christ was justified by his spiritual life and character. He was without sin. Angels announced his coming. Angels ministered him after he was tempted by Satan. And he also announced his resurrection. We also find that he preached to all nations, including the Gentiles, not just to them, but to all nations. Many came to believe in him, as you find there again in verse 16. And he was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God, all from the latter part of verse 16. Why include all that? Because Paul wants us to understand who it is we're trying to glorify. Not man, but God. Try to follow where you're trying to organize the church and put in place leaders not according to man's standards, but according to God's. Some lessons for us today. God's servants must have certain qualities. You'll notice that as you look throughout chapter 3 of 1 Timothy 3, and also you look at Titus chapter 1, there's never any indication of saying if they have some of these things. Right? Here people say sometimes, well, they ask the question, do you have to have all those qualities? You know, it doesn't seem that Paul, speaking through the Holy Spirit, speaking by the Holy Spirit, gave any, gave any option otherwise, does he? It doesn't say, well, if you get 10 out of 12 or 10 out of 25, you're good. No. Titus never said that. 
And when he talks about deacons, he never says that either. God's service must have certain qualities. And these qualifications and these qualities ensure that the right type of men serve as leaders. The right type. Why do job, jobs have requirements? Because they're looking for a certain type of person. Why does God have requirements for elders and deacons? Because He's looking for a certain type of person. The same reason. God has set the standard, but it's up to man to uphold them. To uphold them. Think about this for a moment. If an elder or a deacon clearly no longer possesses the qualities of an elder or a deacon, should they continue to serve? No. Because once you are disqualified by failing to have those qualities, we're not talking about making a mistake and, yes, even an elder or deacon having to repent of making a mistake or having a shortcoming and working to do better. That's a lot different from saying, you know what, I don't care, this is what I think is right, if it is false teaching, or this is how I'm going to behave, I want to see what the problem is. That person is no longer qualified to be an elder or a deacon, depending on who you're talking about. Just as you are qualified to be an elder and deacon by these qualities, you also become disqualified by not having those things present. God shows us what true leaders look like, not this corrupt world that surrounds us. I don't care who you're talking about. The world has never and should never set the standard for the church. The world around us looks for a lot of different things in leaders, do they not? And let's be honest, some of them look for actually look for corrupt things. God looks for qualities that are good uh, for the church and qualities which are in a man who is living as a light for the world will make a positive influence upon those inside and outside the church. Someone who will be a positive influence inside and outside of the church. So let us be those who are considering leaders look to the Bible for the standard. We must look to the Bible for the standard. History has taught us many things. One we learn repeatedly is that God's way is the best way. Because, friends, when nothing changes when it comes to us wanting to be leaders or to have leaders, if nothing changes, rest assured, nothing will change. We're not willing to do what is right and make tough decisions. Nothing will change for for the better whether we're talking about in the world or in the church. In Isaiah 55 and verse 9, here the Bible says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Sometimes I wonder, and we've forgotten that, when we start making excuses while we're doing what we're doing, have we forgotten who knows best? So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let us be those who are humble enough that when we talk about leaders in any capacity, that we look to the Bible for our standard. That we make those tough decisions, because friends, the last thing we want to hear in the day of judgment is, I never knew you, right? Because those who fail to follow God's standard 
Those who fail to make the tough decisions. Think about for a moment, how many times did Christ get put in very tough situations and had to make people very upset because He told them the truth that they had to hear? How many times? Well, we know the Pharisees, they hated Him. Right? When I talk about the book of Matthew, we've been doing Matthew on Thursdays when we do our Bible study. And I talk about the Pharisees a lot because they are the prime example of what true hypocritical stubbornness and hatred looks like. Because they hated Christ with a blind, burning hate, which we probably haven't experienced yet in this world. We know that the apostles also would face a lot of hardship because they made the tough decision to stand for what was right, and we know that they paid the price for it. With the exception of possibly John, everyone else died a martyr's death. Even John the Baptizer was beheaded in prison because he told the king, you can't have her. God says it's a sin. What happened? He lost his head for it, literally. The apostles, many of them were, were killed, or all of them were killed in some horrific way. Some beheaded, some crucified, some dragged through the streets, some beat with clubs, all types of things because they're willing to make the tough decision to stand for what is right. And we must do the same as well. This morning, as you think about these things, we can help you or encourage you in any way. You can come forward now. It's going to be saying, sing the song that's been selected.